today's Dead Idea? Well, this is the final episode of our series on technocracy, and as we've said, this is a not-quite-dead idea. It wasn't just in the 30s. In fact, there is still a small but passionate movement to this day, and today we are interviewing a member of that movement, Justin Lazara. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. We've got a very special episode for you today. We've been talking about technocracy all this time as if we knew something, but today we're going to hear about it from someone who really does know his stuff, an insider, a member of the technocracy movement today. So we'll hear his take and hopefully get some perspective on some of the things that were stumbling blocks for us as we were exploring this idea. With me today is Justin Lazara. Thank you for being on the show, Justin. Thank you for having me. You want to tell us a little bit about your involvement in the technocracy movement, how long you've been in it, what your role is? I've been involved in the technocracy movement for five years directly, and then I've been observing it from far away for a lot longer than that, maybe 20 years. Okay. And, like, um, and then I've uh, mainly been involved managing their Facebook, uh, managing and adding content to their Facebook group page. Okay, so you're kind of like social media and public relations in that sense. So, yeah. Okay, very cool. All right, well, let's get into it. So, uh, Justin, let me just start off by saying I'll be straight up honest. When I first encountered all this, that North America should be one unified nation governed by engineers, technicians, scientists, and so on, I mean, I was a little taken aback. And as a nerd myself... My first thought was, frankly, the last people I'd want in control are people like me. <laughs> um, and I suspect that technocracy probably does get a lot of knee-jerk reactions just like that. What do you think? What, what, is, what do you find people's initial reactions to the idea of technocracy to be? The, the quickest reaction is that it's uh, closeted communism. It's <laughs> um, organized and managed. Mm -hmm. Central planning. And you use you hear the term in, in the media a lot um, with in relationship to China about technocracy and that's how it's managed by a bunch of technocrats. Okay, interesting, interesting. I hadn't put that together before. Well, as far as I'm concerned, on my end, what, the more I researched into it, the more I was kind of like, in the end, it, it, I have to say, it kind of got me. I, I developed a respect for some of the ideas. They're not nearly as crazy as they've seemed at first glance. They're actually, it's actually a movement that it feels like it really kind of could work if we could get over some hurdles to get there. And we'll get into that at the end of the episode. Maybe I'll get your perspective on those things. But the thing was for, for doing this particular podcast, Dead Ideas, normally we do ideas that are extinct, that nobody believes in anymore, nobody follows anymore. But as I researched into us, I discovered that there is, in fact, a small technocracy movement today. And I thought, wow, even if this isn't a dead idea, it's just too interesting to pass up. And now that I get to talk to you, it's even better. So I would really like to ask you now, like, what is the technocracy movement today? How big is it? What What kind of involvement is going on? Can you tell me a little bit about the state of the technocracy movement today? It's um, China. It's a small movement today, centralized in Washington um, state, and it's trying to revitalize itself and make its content more relevant to how people talk. 
talk and think about things today. If, if you look at uh, the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement, they're direct successors of the technocracy movement and use the same exact ideas and principles and maybe just rebrand them and relabel them to, for today's generation. Sure. The Venus Project did turn up a little bit in my research. My understanding is that it was 70s-ish kind of a movement. If you look at Jacques Fresco, admits that he was a technocracy member at one time. Okay. And his whole uh, centrally planned city was something that was talked about in technocracy publications, um, mm -hmm. like, you know, like little local technocracy newsletters kind of things, mm -hmm. um, before he came out with his own idea. Okay. So for him to say that, you know, he didn't get inspired by it, there's another gentleman, Paulo Soleri, uh -huh. um, who came up with the concept of arcology. Mm -hmm. uh, even his idea is predated by literature that technocracy was already putting out. And you can even look up that literature on the technocracy website today and see the original newsletter with the article about the urban apes, what the technocracy called it. Mm hmm Mm -hmm. The communities that you would live in if you were living in a technate. Right, that are essentially organized and managed. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. so those movements, and the, the term uh, resource-based economy, mm -hmm. is just the rebranding of the energy credit. So that, and I've talked to those people in, in, from Zeitgeist in person, and, and they're very aware of their links to technocracy. Mm -hmm. So they're distinct and, movements, but with a common root. Right, and they, well, they, they recognize that they, that they came from technocracy. Sure. They, they see technocracy's big failing is its uh, fascist overtones. <laughs> but you also have to remember that in the 1930s, you know, fascism, the, the trappings of it, could have been seen as a, a marketing campaign or a marketing ploy. Sure. I mean, before World War II broke out, fascism was kind of on the up. Um, yeah. and he was very popular in America. Yeah, yeah, Mussolini was somewhat respected. But then, of course, World War II happened, and nobody wanted to be labeled a fascist after that. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> of course, the, the technocrats, even of the 1930s, were never themselves in any way associated with the American fascist movement, or they right. didn't do anything to, to forge links with those, so far as I know. Right, but with uh, everybody wearing the gray outfits and the monad... Right, you know, and the organized uh, car drives, you know, yep. could be looked at as a march, you know. Yep. You can see where people get that misinterpretation. Uh, that misinterpretation, yeah, yeah. I mean, I made the connection myself, but it didn't turn up in any of my research, so I figured it had to be my own imagination. <laughs> well, um, speaking of the 1930s, then, why don't we talk about how has the technocracy movement grown and changed since the 1930s? Now, for our listeners on this show, they'll already have heard three episodes on technocracy, so they've got a little bit of background. And we did mention that there was the Transition Plan 2016 on the Technocracy Inc. website that mentioned that the formula for calculating the cost of products and energy credits would now, in their formulation, include environmental impact. That's one way that I know of that things have grown and changed. Can you tell me anything else about how things have developed since the 30s? Uh is trying to focus on how to implement a technique on a, a small scale as, as a proof concept. Because with the, the way technology has changed since uh -huh. the 1930s, which is a ton, yeah. you know, it's technologically feasible to do something like that. 
and, and you could even argue in transhumanism um, in certain libertarian circles mm-hmm. that a lot of the ideas of a small self-contained self-sustaining community which is what basically technocracy is talking about mm-hmm. it, it's, it's still emphasized just just in a smaller package so technocracy is trying to repackage its ideas in a much smaller package trying to show that's possible Right. Okay, that is really interesting to me, because as far as I ever read in the authors from the 30s, the reason why they wanted the whole North American continent is because you needed to have a certain total amount of resources and energy available in order to be self-sufficient. And so anything less than at least the U.S. and Canada being on board would just not be viable, according to them. But it sounds like due to the changes in the amount of technology and the kinds of technology available, now you can do like a small, like um, uh, a small pilot community that you, as you say, would be like a proof of concept. Can you can you tell me any more details about what that would look like? Well, like 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 a, like a, a Mars colony. When we talk about a Mars colony, it's sure. a small self-contained community that's extremely high tech mm-hmm. and is is has to be a hundred percent reliable on itself. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's the best example that I can think of of what it would look like. Yeah, that's that's pretty easy to relate to. Is there anybody in the technocracy movement or any of those other movements like Venus or whatever that is trying to do, you know, like a like a pilot community uh, to prove the concept here, like say do they have like a, an enclosed city in the desert or I don't know, something something of that nature that resembles a colony. Uh, technocracy is working on a, a hydroponic farm that's like automated that mm-hmm. they're trying to build and okay. that's kind of, uh, that would be like central to a community, trying to give it food and sustenance and power. But the closest thing I can think of that's built, that somebody's built, is um, the Arkansanti community in mm-hmm. Arizona. Mm-hmm. It's, it's along those lines, it's going to be a small self-sustained community. And okay. then uh, the Biosphere projects that's, that were funded a few years ago, trying to do uh, simulated uh, Martian colonies. Right. But those are like the, the two best like, physical manifestations that you think of those ideas. So how do they work it out testing the no money concept if they're that small of a community? Well, the, the originally how the idea is it's supposed to work is it's all supposed to be based on uh, energy requirements for production. Mm-hmm. So you, you take like a toaster, you figure out how many you know watts of energy it takes to produce that toaster, mm-hmm. you know, and and then that's the value of the toaster. Right. And then, and then everybody's allotted a certain amount of energy based on power production, whether it's nuclear or solar or whatever that they produce a month. Mm-hmm. And then that's how you spend your your, your money is, 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 is through energy. Sure. And as far as this small-scale kind of pilot community would be concerned, they're, they would have to be producing everything that they need, too, in order to have that self-sufficiency. So they don't yeah, necessarily need... power. Hmm? And it, they have to produce their own power, and then that would be the basis for, for the value of the things in the community. Okay. And, it, it, and at first, you probably couldn't be 100% sustainable, but... Right, you'd um, have to bring in products from outside and then just kind of figure out how that would have worked if you had only relied on like your own production or something. Right. It, it, it's just like a colony, if you started a colony, like... Right. Um, you know, like the colonies started in America, you know, they weren't 100% sustainable at first. Sure. They, had to, they would always bring in uh, manufactured items from England, and, you know, there's always something. Yeah. And that's not 
that's not a betrayal really of of how a, a technate would work because a, an actual technate that on a large scale that would be installed would already have all the pre-existing infrastructure to build from and that basically is like having a few products from the outside to get you going in the start in the first place too so it seems pretty justifiable to start that way right and then like you know you probably have to be like a small city state of like a hundred thousand people before you pretty close to sustainable. Sure. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Okay. Well, I guess the next thing that I would like to ask about is uh, some of the questions that we stumbled over when we were going through this material. And, you know, of course, we are by no means experts. You know, I'm just relying on what I could find. I did a lot of research, but it's still, you know, insufficient. So I'll get your take on this stuff. Um, so some of the things that that brought up questions that I couldn't find answers for. One of them was, I was wondering, okay, so you live in urbanates in a technate, right? And the urbanates are more or less focused around a large factory that's producing something. That's at least the way they seem to come across in the Herald Lab, for example, and other authors that I read. So I was wondering if, let's say that I'm working at a steel factory but then plastics really takes off, and there's much less demand for steel now. What happens to me and the other workers at my factory? Do we just work less, and but our urbanate is otherwise unchanged? Is some of our community kind of transplanted over to more in-demand factories to work those? That part, I, I didn't know how that would work, if there would be a lot of uprooting, or, or what would happen? You'd probably have to be retrained and, and relocated. Because, mm -hmm. you know, your, your work is, 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 is contribution to the community. So it's kind of like you, you, you get in when you're, where you're needed. Sure. But if everything's centrally located, it shouldn't be a big deal to move to the building across the street, you know. Well, that's the part that got me, though, because the impression that I got, and maybe I was wrong, is that your urban aid well, I imagine it wouldn't be, it would only have one factory. It seemed like it would be focused around one main factory producing one main thing because they even described how like each of the urbanates would develop their own culture to, you know, based on what they were producing and what their needs were. So those who, you know, worked in steel mills would end up with a different culture than those who, you know, worked on, say, public relations or something like that. So uh, uh, the impression that I got was not necessarily that there was going to be a bunch of different products being produced within your urbanate, but that you're going to be focused on mainly one. So if your urbanate, you know, kind of tanked in terms of um, the demand for what you're producing, that's where it seemed like, ooh, there could be a lot of like social chaos with all that uprooting and, and transplanting people around. Well, with, with what, what you're talking about, that's like an older model where everything's organized over a continent, you have massive old factories. Okay, okay. With, with some more modern technology, like a, like a Tesla factory, it does take up a lot of room. You know, and you have things like 3D printing where you can print on demand and smaller manufacturing to, 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 to demand. And okay. And you don't have excess of waste in production. So, so manufacturing has changed a lot. It's a lot smaller, compact. Doesn't need to be a huge steel mill. It could be a much smaller production. Okay. So you another can't do that maybe for every industry, but obviously, but you could for a lot of new uh, industries, things have updated. You know, you, you don't need as much labor-intensive things now, even in today's society as you used to. Sure. 
which is what the technocrats expected to happen. You know, the machines would take over most of the menial chores of production and people's main jobs would be you know, to watch the machines and make sure everything is going smoothly, right? So, right. yeah. Okay, so that's interesting. Yeah, that's another uh, growth and development since the 30s then. That's cool. Uh, okay, another thing that I was wondering about is, so as things were envisioned in the 30s, you could pretty much have as much as you wanted of any product unless it happened to rely on resources that were naturally limited. So, for example, if it required a mineral or element that was just plain scarce on, on the planet or within your technique. So, you know, let's say that something is developed that requires unobtainium, and they have a little bit of it, but not enough. And so somebody's got to decide who gets, you know, what's produced by that. Or you don't even have to go that far into the sci-fi. You can even be like, who gets to live on the on the choicest, you know, beach of San Francisco? <laughs> it's a limited resource. There's no way that you can reproduce something like that. So in a technique, how then would you decide who gets those very special products? You'd probably have to prioritize need. I think mm. if it's medicine, you try to get to sick people. And if you still have a shortage, you'd have to probably use a lottery system. Oh yeah, lottery. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and the medicine—that's that's an even more close to home example because you can, yeah, you can imagine not having enough of a certain kind of vaccine or something. Okay, okay, very interesting. Uh, my next question that I have for you is uh, something that one of my co-hosts raised and found it a probably his biggest concern that he saw about uh, technocracy as it was depicted in the 1930s, and that is really the fact that the leadership is appointed rather than democratically elected. And the question then is, who appoints the appointees? And that's basically other appointees. And the concern there would be, like, it could lead to kind of an endemic bias, right? Wherever you start off with, like, if it starts off with rich white people, they're going to appoint other rich white people and so on. Uh, the fear is that it might lead to bias, tyranny, that kind of thing. What would a technocratic response to that be? What do you think? Oh, it'd probably be a lot like the promotion process in like a company or a government organization where you have a panel of people and then you ensure that the panel's diverse and then that everybody on the panel has to do with the thing that they're working on, that their their skill sets relative to the voting process. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to be electing the best person in the field, you know, up the ladder. And, and you know, you'd be elected by uh, maybe a council of your, your seniors and a council of your peers. Your seniors um, and your peers. Yeah, like, um, so, like, if I'm going, I don't know, I'll use military ranking because it's sure. what I know the best. So, um, if you're a corporal trying to become a sergeant, you're going to have a panel of sergeants that are going to select one of the corporals, and then you're also going to have maybe a panel of privates that are going to pick a candidate mm -hmm. uh, for being promoted. And then you have two panels that way, and that should try to eliminate a lot of biases. And it's more of a process of your peers that are relative to what you're trying to move up in. Is that really true in the U.S. military today? Um, it's been true in other militaries in the past, but now it's, it's usually, you know, officers, and it has to do with the point system in the okay. military. It's usually a point system, and it's personal, and it's people choosing. Okay. You have to... You have to so many points to become sergeant or corporal, but then somebody still has to say to go ahead, and then they still have to have a slot where they need somebody for that job. 
Well, I think the analogy to like like a corporate kind of promotion system was also apt in some ways, both in the good and the bad, because, yeah, of course, you are supposed to be looking at merit and, you know, experience and stuff and and appointing things based on that. But as we also see in the corporate world, there is a glass ceiling and sometimes some endemic bias. I wonder how the technocratic writers of the 30s would have, you know, responded to that, because the way I read them, they never really put forward a vision that things are going to be perfect. They're just going to be better than what they had. So, you know, I don't know if they're going to be able to account for all of it, but maybe that's okay. But but in the 30s, you have like racism was kind of like ingrained in our culture. And I mean, when you're talking more about a cultural shift, you know, sure. So I think that's, uh, I mean, maybe like the actions we took with affirmative action, you know, when we were going through, you know, civil rights and all that, I mean, maybe you could incorporate some of that. I think that's, that's a tough question because a lot of those glass ceilings are cultural things. They're not really part of an organized system. Yeah. And I think that's a fair enough answer. I mean, it, it always comes down to, um, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but it's better than what we got now kind of a solution. So. Well, in a culture, a culture of people always have flaws. Like te- technocracy is always trying to say that it's a system and, it, and it's not like a, a dictated way of life. You know, like like, mm-hmm. um, like you should be able to take a technocracy and bring it to different groups and different cultures and they can make use of it. Yeah. And also, if we're comparing this appointee system to, say, democratic elections, democratic elections are by no means perfect either. I mean, there's plenty well, of flaws and glass ceilings involved there as well. So, well, And a democracy in America operates very differently than a democracy in Nigeria. You know? Sure. I mean, there's a way different spin on each one, but they're both democracies. Yeah. I mean, same thing with the technocracy in different places and with different cultures. Yeah, I think that's fair too. Okay, I have uh, another question for you, which is... Less like how it would work and more like how can we get there kind of a thing. So for the third episode of our series, what we and my co-hosts tried to do is indulge in a little bit of alternate history starting in 1932 and then deviating from the historical timeline to try to figure out like an imaginary timeline where the technate actually does succeed in, in the United States, Canada, and perhaps the rest of North America. But we kept stumbling over one particular stumbling block that we just couldn't quite get around in a realistic way and that is how do you get the rich to give up being rich and just hand over control to the experts and you know give up money the rich being in our society the people with the greatest amount of influence how how do you how do you get over that stumbling block without an armed revolution or something that forcibly equalizes the playing field uh it's just like any revolution, you know, there's a peaceful revolution and there's the armed revolution. So, <laughs> um, and you can just look at history and when you've seen like huge changes in society, you know, you have some revolutions that are peaceful and some that are not so peaceful. And I think you'd end up with the same thing. Well, let's say um, we went the peaceful route because the way the writers of the 30s were talking about it, they, they weren't in favor of an armed revolution. They saw how much devastation that that caused in the Soviet Union. And also, they were counting on all the industrial infrastructure that was in place in order for their technique to work. So they didn't want that to be destroyed by an armed revolution. So they wanted a peaceful revolution. But that also means 
you've got to get some other way to either persuade the rich to give up the whole idea of money or, you know, just in some way get over that stumbling block. So if we could envision what that peaceful revolution might look like, where do, we, where do we where do we begin? It would be a democracy. Um, if the people voted for it, it doesn't really matter. If you have enough of the people voting for it, you can override the, the will of the rich. You know, that's where, you know, like if, 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 if people were voting for all their congressmen and their senators to be their party or their idea system and all their local um, government authorities, you know, then you have control. It doesn't really matter, you know. Mm. You put your people in police, military, fire, medical, you put your people in all the important positions and you hold all the keys. It doesn't really matter. So, so, so the yeah, only way the rich would be able to oppose you is if, if they hired their own military or their own mercenaries, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, was it the industrial age where, uh, you had, uh, JP Morgan and Rockefeller mm -hmm. hiring, uh, their own little mercenaries to beat up strikers to break up strikes. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that would be their option at that point. Once you have, you know, popular support. Uh-huh. And even then it wouldn't matter if you had the numbers. Right. At a certain, at a certain point when you got number them 10 to 1, it doesn't really matter what they want, or a hundred to one, you know, just the sheer weight of numbers. And, they, right. and you can just simply refuse, you know, they tell you to do something and you just say, no, we're doing this. So in other words, what you would need is you would need a, a lot of solidarity among the 99 percenters to put that mass protest forward and make those demands and not back down in the face of intimidation from the one percenters, basically. Well, at, at that point, if you have that mass of people, it, it wouldn't be a demand. You just start doing it, and they can't do anything about it. <laughs> I don't know. I think money accomplishes a lot of things. But but you can see, though, like in the case of, say, for example, um, India breaking away from the British Empire with Gandhi and whatnot. I mean, they did use a peaceful approach. They did use mass protests, and the the, the British Empire had the wealth, had the military manpower but still couldn't do anything about it so that I does think you're, you're sugarcoating that incident in history the, the indians used plenty of violence leading up to that peaceful separation so the british knew okay, it was either going to be peaceful or violent and it, it was it, it benefited them to go the peaceful route because they could still salvage some business out of the deal okay um, fair i think violence is always an equation in politics it, you know you either go the hard way or the easy way and ultimately, we go with the way that they, they think is going to benefit them the most. Mm -hmm. And so. maybe maybe it might play out something like that in an alternate timeline technocracy thing. Maybe the ideal of the technocratic movement would be to keep it peaceful, but there's plenty of violence that's also erupting and being threatened. And so well, that, yeah... I, I, I'm a big alternate history fan, too. And I don't know what scenario you guys used, but um, you, you ever heard of uh, Smedley Butler? Smedley Butler, no. Uh, he, he was a United States Marine, twice awarded with the Medal of Honor, spoke out against, uh, he has the whole war is a racket speech. He would he get paid by uh, communist, American Communist parties to give uh, anti-militarism speeches and these to people and in, in amongst the bonus army you know he was a big hero, uh, hero and the bonus army was a bunch of world war one veterans trying to get their um their benefits early because of the great depression 
Mm-hmm. Um, so they were encamped in uh, Washington D.C. and there was a uh, people were scared that they were going to overthrow the government. And then Smedley Butler claimed later uh, later on that he was approached by a bunch of wealthy businessmen to lead the the Bonus Army and overthrow the president and take over the United States. Hmm. Um, but he claimed it was a a cable of wealthy men that were pro fascist. But but um. So, so some people see that as an alternate history timeline where America could have came fascist. But then you also say, mm. you know, Smedley Butler was also a, um, he was a communist sympathetic. So he could have overthrown them and double crossed them and made America communist. Sure. You know, or he could have overthrown the government and installed whatever he wanted. Uh-huh. So like, I, I, you know, that's like kind of like a, a slow creeping popular uprising based on poverty. You know, you had all these soldiers that were poor and needed money and had hardened resolves, and they encamped in D.C. with their families in little shanty towns, and they had an, a sufficient mass, and the, and the military back then was really ridiculously small. So so you didn't really need that many people to, to go in there to force a regime change or seek change. I see. The idea of, of poverty also is an interesting jumping-off point for another question, which is, so in the 1930s, when technocracy had its heyday, of course, you had just had the 1929 stock market crash, and you had the Great Depression, and times were bad, right? And it's, it's, it's when times are palpably bad that people are most uh, willing to start looking at extreme changes in how the system works, right? But yeah. as soon as things get reasonably okay again even if it's just a band-aid fix then it becomes a lot harder to get people to sign on to a movement like technocracy where it's like we're not going to have money anymore (laughs) you know so in the absence of something like that again i mean do i guess my question is if technocracy was going to in our real historical future sometime take root in a real way would we have to have really desperate times again? Or do you think no. even in prosperous times, it's still possible? No, I, I don't. I, I think um, if you read some stuff about like uh, trans, transhumanism and libertarian ideas where they want to have these uh, small communities where they're self-sufficient and they can do whatever they want because of emerging technologies like 3D printing and fusion and all this. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think those are a lot of technocracy ideas right there. I mean, but but on a small scale. And these people are doing it voluntary, um, not because of desperation, because of personal freedom. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, the, the availability of small-scale, high technology is going to empower... It'll probably be a group of wealthy people or people that are just totally dedicated to an idea, breaking off and forming something to prove the idea for their own betterment, you know? You yeah. see people already going off the grid and buying farms. Yeah. You know, that's been going on for a long time. It would just kind of be a continuation of that, but with a more of a high-tech twist. What, what always kills me about all these, like, uh, people wanting to go off the grid and retreat from society, they seem to systematically give up all technology in the process. Right. Instead of bringing it with them and utilizing it. And I right. think when you see a group of people that do that, I think you'll see the the dawning of uh, a mini-tech date. Well, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, hopeful vision for the future. So, uh, maybe that's a good place to wrap it up for today. Is there anything else that you wanted to say, or 
If you have anything you want to plug, whether it's your stuff or something to do with Technocracy Inc., you can go ahead and say it if you want. Check out uh, Technocracy Facebook if you want to see what you know, news and new ideas that we're discussing and looking at. And if you want to look at the bulk of Technocracy's material, check out the website. And um, what is the URL for that? Yeah, technocracyinc.org. And then, I don't know, I just wanted to kind of touch on, uh, you know, with, with technocracy, like, it's, it's it ripples effects through uh, through history. Like, uh, Zeitgeist and Venus Project are direct successors of technocracy. And if you talk to those people, they're very aware of their origins. They just don't like to talk about it. I, I feel like technocracy, just uh, through history, it's been a, a lack of better PR that, that's caused its decline than... Uh, the, the quality of its ideas. Yeah, yeah, lack of good PR. And another thing I've heard is a lack of, uh, like, a political platform that gives the common person something to do other than just recognize that the experts should be in control. Like a political message that allows them to feel something and feel like they're a participant and they have something to do getting this going. That has been one of the criticisms. And I wonder if there is a PR way that that could phrase things better, that would really get people able to sign on, like, heart and soul, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah, uh, and I think, um, I mean, I can't, uh, you know, say it enough, like, if you look at, um, I mean, we're, we're kind of crude creatures, we, we like pretty pictures, so, I mean, you look at Venus Project and Zeitgeist, and they have lots of pretty pictures and videos and movies and stuff to get you all fired up, and get out there mm -hmm. and, and I, I think it's kind of funny too because in their movements uh, when I've attended their meetings and stuff um, you see the same kind of thing everybody gets fired up and then they don't have anything to do <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> you, you, you show them the movie for two hours and they're like yeah and then, they, and then they're like well what are we going to do uh, just spread the word uh, yeah. okay educate educate educate, educate. <laughs> yeah so, so I think I think uh, in the future there's a lot of a lot of people that are independently. You can see it on Facebook too. Uh, they use the term RBE, resource-based economy, and it's just the same exact thing as the energy credit system. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple groups called Build an RBE Community today, mm -hmm. and um, there's small groups now trying to implement these ideas on a small scale actively. I've seen actually. If you need references, I, I know a lot of websites for it too. Yeah, so if you want to send me those links you were talking about, absolutely, I'll put them on the show. Okay, and one group that we're affiliated is in Colorado with Frank Patrick, and he's trying to do that in his Wallaceburg project. But, but uh, it's exciting to see these small groups trying to implement these ideas, and I think that's really the future of, of this movement is, is, is these small-scale implement, implementations you know, slowly scaling up. Right, and I think that's also the best way, probably, like to get a nice, like, hardcore center movement of almost like zealots, <laughs> uh, because yeah. it, if you devote your life to something to the point that you are, you know, voluntarily going into these like intentional communities, basically, where you're going to live this kind of a life, you know, that's that's more than just reading the books and you know going to the meetings and passing out pamphlets. That's something that really actually moves hearts and souls. Yeah, and, and um, another area where people don't pay attention to the correlation is um, space research. Right now, there's a lot of people all crazy about Mars, colonizing Mars. Yep. And if you had a 
simulated Martian colony that was sufficient, you would end up with, I think, a technocracy model. Because you can't base things on the value of money because then they'd be ridiculously priced, you know, especially in a colony. <laughs> right. You know, uh, water That's... would be ridiculous. In, in like, um, in Dubai, they're, oh. they're, they're building a simulated Mars colony, and if they adhere to the rules of, you know, it being self-sufficient, it would force a lot of the same conclusions that you get with an energy-based economy. With a Martian colony, your, your, your base of the whole thing is, is energy production. So, like, you're going to have nuclear power or solar power. Mm -hmm. How many kilowatts of energy am I producing? Right. Okay. Um, how am I going to allot that energy production to life support, to manufacturing, to food right. production? And, and right there, you are literally basing everything on the value of energy. Right. And in time, time and energy are, are now the cost of everything in that environment. And you just did away with money. Right. <laughs> you're, 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 the only place money's going to come in is outside support. Right. Well, yeah, so that's interesting things to think about. Well, anyway, I, I think we should leave it there. So, uh, Justin, thank you for being on the show again. Folks, thanks for listening. Remember, right now, we are doing a special portrait giveaway for reviews on Stitcher, specifically Stitcher. If you leave us an honest review, I will draw you in the time period and culture of your choosing. I could draw you in a Mars colony or in a, a proto-technocracy colony here on Earth. Anything you want, I'll draw you, and I'll make you look awesome, I promise. You can see lots of examples on our supporters page at www.deadideas.net. And uh, also, listeners, remember that you can support the show at www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod. All right, that's it for our technocracy series. And next up, in two weeks, we'll be back with a new series, and we are going to be talking about Viking Berserkers. That's going to be a good one. I'll see you, everybody, in a couple of weeks for that. That's it for our show today. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas.